This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. Today on The Gender Card, we explore teacher activism and how that resistance translates into the classroom. PhD candidate Carla Tapia has delved in detail into how teachers can bring about social change through resistance, despite constant scrutiny and limitations on their teaching. Using Indigenous methodologies to understand how teachers engage with their students, she showed how teachers have developed ways to give them space to resist by giving alternative views to history in the classroom that have traditionally been dominated by male perspectives. Senior Research Fellow Dr Debbie Bargalli was one of Carla's supervisors, bringing her expertise on Indigenous methodologies, and they both join us on the Gender Card today. Carla's use of Indigenous Australian methodologies and decolonisation approaches has shone new light on the struggles that teachers face, finding their motivations for becoming teachers to create a fairer society are often thwarted by bureaucracy and how they overcome those challenges. Carla, Deb, thank you so much for joining us on The Gender Card today. Our Thank pleasure. You. Carla, tell us a bit about this fascinating research. It's been really interesting for me to, to read about how you decided on your different research methods. They're quite innovative from what I can see. But can you tell us about how you started on this journey to looking into this particular subject? I started my PhD in 2019 at the same time that Debbie started her postdoctoral research and I started to listen to her talking about uh, Indigenous research methodologies. And the more that I listened to, the more that I felt very engaged with it. It really resonated uh, with me, with my identity, with me as a woman, as as a teacher, as an activist. So after a while, she was the assessor for my confirmation, and I really felt interested in what she was saying and how she approached her projects. Uh, She became part of my supervisory team. Tell us a bit about your heritage. Uh, and I, how, how did you end up here in, in Griffith? I am from Chile and uh, I, have, I am a mestiza. A mestiza in South America is when you have European and indigenous heritage. In our case, the European heritage comes from Spanish uh, settlers or invaders, mm-hmm. colonizers. I haven't heard of that term before. I think that it's most, mostly used in South America and like for all the countries that were colonized by Spain. I applied for a PhD here and I got accepted. So <laughs> that's pretty much it. Because I, I think that actually makes sense, even you speaking about it, that that indigenous aspect of research would resonate with you because of your background, yeah, because, is that right? Yeah, because of the cultural heritage and because we are, we come from, at some point 500 years ago when Spain went to uh, the Americas, we started this colonization process in which we were isolated from the communities. As everyone knows, many indigenous people disappeared and we didn't have any more connections with it. So we don't really know whether or where 
our cultural heritage is in terms of whether it's, I don't know, my grandmother or someone along the line of our cultural heritage. But we do know that we come from these two groups at some point. After 500 years of colonization, it's very difficult to know where. And you're a teacher as well. Yes, so this leads us into, really, what, what was it that you wanted to research further? Uh, my research changed because it started being something about policies in intercultural contexts. I was always interested in the inclusion parts and the diversity and cultural and, and linguistically diverse students. And that project didn't happen because of covid I went for three weeks to Chile in March 2020 and just COVID hit very hard in Australia. Uh, and three and weeks became... Uh, and three weeks became two years. Oh my goodness. So after that, I couldn't <laughs> produce any data because universities was, were shut, there were, there were no students. And me and my supervisors, we all produced a sort of new project in which I think is way more interesting because uh, now I'm exploring the teachers work in the streets and in the in the classrooms like teacher activism to p- the pursuit of social justice and is this an interesting aspect of your role as a teacher is this something that came from your experience yes as a teacher you don't you don't get into teaching because you're be- going to be millionaire and famous at all you get into teaching because you really like or have hope in many cases we have hope that we can help and contribute to break this cycle of poverty, for example, or that all of our students can have equal opportunities. So uh, actually one of the stories that I have in my PhD as a, the product of, of, of it is the, I call it calling. So it tells the story about how teachers feel this calling and get into teaching and try to sort of change the world. This brings us to how you decided on your research methodologies. Can you tell us about that and how you discovered this? Yes, uh, I discovered this with Debbie. Thank you, Debbie. (laughs) So I used three methods in my project. The first one was yarning, the second one was photo yarn, and the third one was uh, testimonial. Yarning is uh, a conversation that you have with another person in in which you you feel comfortable enough that it's a safe space that you feel that you can talk to the other person. It's it's something where I think most people are familiar with that that beautiful concept from Indigenous culture, uh, from Aboriginal culture in Australia about yarning, and it's just got such a a beautiful picture I think that it paints, doesn't it? Of of being in an equal space and be, everyone being able to speak their mind. Exactly, and that was I think one of the most interesting things for me because you weren't restricted. Uh, when producing data with the participants, or in my case, uh, my co-theorists. I think it's also important to note that yarning is a concept that Aboriginal people have always done and always known and always used as a formal and informal way of engaging and engaging respectfully. But it was actually theorised into an Indigenous research method by Aboriginal woman Dawn Bessarab and her colleague Bridget Nandu. That it's actually become a formal research Method. Brilliant. Yes. And what were the others that you mentioned? The, the other one was photo yarn. Uh, photo yarn was also developed or uh, by an Aboriginal woman, uh, Jess That's Rogers. Right. And it is about talking too in, a, in this safe space and comfortable, but uh, you also add a photo. 
So in my case, for example, what I did was asking the teachers, the teacher activists, for a photo that meant something to them so they could tell me the story. And in this way, they would feel, they would feel even more comfortable because it wasn't something sort of asking them many questions. And it would open people up, I imagine. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That is the main thing. It would open them up to be themselves and to feel comfortable enough to speak their minds. And there was a third one as well? Yes, testimonio. Testimonio comes from another group or another methods and methodology. I was inspired by borderland mestizaje feminists that comes from Chicanos and mestizos. In the, It was sort of born in North Mexico, south of the United States, where Chicanos live. And these people, it has many similarities with indigenous uh, research because it's also about trying to resist this mainstream research in which the people are not researching with you, they are researching on you. So we needed to have this safe space, respectful, where the participants could be equals to us, not someone that we would go and see and then take notes and then leave the place. So testimony is a reflexive narrative that the co-theorists or the teacher activists developed. They did it orally or in a written form, depending on what they wanted or they preferred. And what I like the most about it is that it encourages to take action towards social justice and this reflection that you have. And the other thing about borderline mestizaje feminism is that they uh, encourage you to have this hybrid space and in which you can mix things. You can sort of borrow from here and there and it's going to still be something meaningful and research that can produce change and resist against what we have been going through for hundreds of years. So it sounds like First Nations knowledge here in Australia was actually able to combine with your, your other research, that's just fascinating. It's like you came up with a, a new method yourself, in yes, a way. Yes, I actually mm. came up with an activist decolonizing methodology. You actually called it a teacher activist decolonizing methodology. Including all these bits and pieces from different places that really resonated and felt like a perfect fit for me and for my participants too, because they were just like me. They were teacher activists trying to produce change and provoke this new spaces for their students and for themselves. So those 26 teachers, were they Australian teachers? Oh, no. no, Chilean? Sorry, I produced the data in Chile in 2020, and they were Chilean teacher activists. They were mostly females. It really reflected the population of teachers because it was 75% of women and 25% of men. And do teachers in Chile face this similar sort of issues here in, in Queensland and I think broadly in Australia where that's really quite frowned on to be involved in activism, isn't it? And, and sometimes it's explicitly not allowed, even in the public system. Yes, and that was why this project was welcomed. Uh, they were really positive about everything, uh, they told me that they were grateful because nobody has given them this space to discuss these things. And one of them, for example, he specifically told me, I haven't talked to with about this with anyone before. In my school, if I want to go to a certain protest, for example, I need to sign with a blue pen. I need to sign my resignation. 
So he wasn't allowed to just go there and parade pretty much. So this space for them was very cathartic. At some points they were very emotional. They would cry and sometimes they also cried with them. We had very deep conversations about their experiences as teachers in the classrooms and as activists on the streets. Because as you said at the beginning, this is the reason so many people became a teacher. Mm-hmm. And yet once they're in teaching, it's like they're expected to suppress that. But it sounds like teachers found innovative ways to express this. Would that be fair to say? Yes. And actually, as Linda Tuchiway-Smith would say, uh, activism is not about being protesting on the streets. It's about communicating something. And these teachers were communicating that they were not happy about the system, that they were not happy about the teachers' conditions. They lived daily or they were not happy about how things were done in the schooling system like as a whole. Because, for example, I remember one of them would say that in Chile we had an earthquake in, tw- in 2010, a massive earthquake, and the school just fell. And even in 2019, 2020, they, had, they didn't have a school again. It was just containers, boxes where students study. Even though it was very likely that the, the funding was there, it wasn't used for what it was supposed to be used. Carla, you earlier mentioned your use of my term, co-theorists, to explain the research participants. Can you talk a little bit about how you use the term or when, during your research, did you identify that your participants became co-theorists in your research project? The participants became co-theorists, I think, that on the second stage of data production. I had two stages of data production. The first one was using photo yarn and testimonials. And from there... I got familiarized with the data and came up with ideas to develop the stories. But on the second stage of data production, I directly asked some of the participants how and what they wanted to, to tell in these stories. So they also participated in producing them. They were as important as who was writing them to provide with ideas, with knowledge and with theory to go through these four stories that I developed. So they were participants to begin with and they became co-theorists with you in that journey. Yes, they they were participants at the beginning and then they became co-theorists at the end of the journey. So Carla, how did you acknowledge those stories? It sounds like they were so detailed. How did you uh, do that? As most of the outcomes from this project, it was a creative thing. I acknowledged the participants by crafting a handmade book. Uh, So I gathered all those testimonials and their photos and put the testimonial and the photos on it and then handed them to every participant. Oh, what a lot of work. That's amazing that you did that for every one of the 26 participants as well. Yes. I I emailed them back, asked for their address and gave it to them so they could... I bet they were very moved as well. Yeah, the idea was also to sort of have a like a time capsule in which in 10 more, ye- more years they could just see this crafted book and see how they were in 2019, 2020 or whether all the activism they had participated in actually produced any changes and also to sort of feel connected to the other activist teachers 
because they could see their own stories, but also the all of the others' participants' stories. Sounds like that creative component was actually a really important part of your research. Yes, from the methods as the photo yarn was that is also art based to the outcomes that are the stories. What did you call the, each of these books? The title of the book was A Chant. Uh, el profe marchando también está educando, which means that the teacher protesting is also educating. Oh, that is beautiful, actually. Very profound. It's a beautiful book, too. Yeah, Very right. professionally well produced. It's very colourful. And what other interesting findings have you been able to collate from... It must be such a rich vein of research when you've done it in that much detail. Yes, I think that I, I might have... Lo enough information to be writing for a very long time. <laughs> I remember one of the teachers that she was, as I said, very emotional. Uh, she would tell me this story about teaching in in an close to an indigenous communities, and she just got into her classroom. She saw these songs written on the on the whiteboard, and it was uh, something written in in. Mapuzungun, that is the language that the, the Mapuche people speak in Chile. And uh, she is a very, she really likes this culture and she told them to teach her something from the whiteboard and nobody did. And everyone looked like they, their faces were not that happy. So uh, she, she continued asking them like, but this is very important because you're learning something new because it's a part of our uh, heritage because it's our background, etc., And they were pretty much erased the whiteboards and they didn't do anything else. But at the end of the class, one of the boys got closer to her and he told her that he, was, he had indigenous heritage and one of her parents was from the community. And she just started crying because she said, why this kid needs to hide his roots? The boy didn't tell that he was from Indigenous heritage because he knew that everyone would tease him and bully him. So she started crying and why would we need to hide who we are just because we're scared of our class classmates? And first of all, that is unfair. Second, the more the merrier in terms of diversity too. Like we're going to be learning from our surroundings. And I think that it's very sad for a boy of like, I think that it was a year five, so 10 years old, that he feels this need of going to his sort of shell and hide himself, like hide everything. Deb, it's fascinating. Can you tell us a bit of your perspective on this? I'd just like Carla to talk a little bit about her theory because you had significant amount of theory. We know that lived experience is important, but lived experience in terms of research, absent of theory, doesn't do a lot. So could you speak to your Indigenous research framework? Mm. Yes, of course. I also developed my methodology uh, chapter as influenced by Indigenous methodology frameworks. And it is divided, first of all, in a standpoint, second conceptual framework, and third methods. I already covered the methods. So the conceptual framework, I engaged with uh, concepts from the sociology of education space. I used Basil Bernstein ideas or concepts 
of pedagogic device, pedagogic rights, and classification and framing. These were used to analyze the power and control relationships existing in schooling. And besides this, I also added love because, as I said at the beginning, love is what moves us and encourages to engage in these kind of situations. So we, don't, we can't think that t teachers and, and students come as empty vessels to be filled at school. We need to think that they have something and we need to, to also take that in, in consideration when we are teaching them. So with these concepts, I developed uh, my discursive gap at some point in which I, I, I went back and forth with concepts and, and uh, theory and data. And uh, with this, I developed four stories that ref reflect the um, cycle of an activist. So the first one that I already mentioned was calling. Uh, another one about how the gen gender is uh, reproduced at schools. Another one about pushing the boundaries. And the last one is about intergenerational activism because it was very likely that many of the teachers that were activists would come from a family of activists too. Uh, so all these concepts were very helpful to develop these stories and to understand the data from a conceptual perspective. And considering that we know that Indigenous research methodology in the way that we use it consists of standpoint, conceptual framework, which includes your concepts and theories and your methods. Can you speak a little bit about your standpoint? Because that's the position that you're taking to you know, view your research from. Yes, uh, my standpoint, uh, I develop a Chilean mestiza standpoint. And I say mestiza, and not mestiza woman, because is uh, when I say mestiza, you know that Spanish is gendered, so I'm talking about a female. I followed Eileen Morton Robinson and Debbie's work. Uh, standpoint theories are used to represent the world from an advantaged uh, position. So they draw on the researcher's individual knowledge and perspective, uh, which are shaped by our political and social positions. So standby theories try to understand our world from, a from the perspective of marginalized groups. So they allow these research sites to become spaces for reflection and debate. Uh, with all of this, I developed my um, Tilian Mestiza standpoint. So can you tell us a bit about how you applied that uh, or how did it work? Uh, for example, in terms of contents, if they had, if they needed to teach history and most of the history is always told with male uh, perspective, yeah, protagonists, <laughs> like this was who saved the country or something like that, and they are always males, uh, these teachers would say, well, I also have girls in my classrooms. So I need to do something so they feel identified with what I'm teaching. Else they're going to think that they're never going to be anything worth, like, useful in their lives. And they would sort of expand the curriculum. They would teach the content, but also teach all the males and add some of the females to broad the knowledge of their students and to help them feel they might have a stake in their schooling process. And you're very close to finishing your PhD. What Hopefully. an incredible journey. You're like from Griffith University here in Brisbane to Chile and back again. 
what are your reflections on that looking back? It actually helped your project evolve in some ways, though, didn't it? Yes, mm. uh, it did help me to produce my data because I wouldn't... Probably I could have done it from here, but not in the same way, not in the same time. I think that hopefully, yes, I am at the end of the PhD project. It's a bumpy journey, mm. uh, but I also know that I was lucky enough to have the supervisors that I had. Uh, my supervisors are Professor Palo Singh, uh, Dr. Debbie Bagali, and Dr. Sue Wadman. They have been great help, as I said before. And we have come up with, for example, a paper from the whole project. We just submitted an article to a journal, of course, and uh, it is about actually this, uh, the activism in t teachers' activism in Chile and how it tries to pursue this social justice for students and also democratize uh, the classrooms. We have worked together for over three years now and it has been a very positive uh, experience. They, they were very understanding. Mostly when I was back in Chile for COVID during the two years, they were very, very understanding. They would, for example, they would meet with me the first time in their mornings. So it wasn't that late for me because we had 14 or 13 hours of difference. So when it was for them, I don't know, 8 a.m., for me it was 7 p.m. Doing that, attending to classes on Griffith time, was just crazy at some point. But uh, in our meetings where we could debrief, we could talk about the participants' perspectives, uh, we could talk about research, I always felt very taken care of. My supervisors would ask how I was in terms of, like, personal and also like in terms of PhD. Uh, and I know that not everyone has that luck, but I did have it. How about for you, Deb, thinking of, of what an incredible experience for you too. I bet it brought up some issues that you hadn't contemplated when you started this PhD. Oh, for me, it's um, absolutely been a, a great experience. Carla's probably one of my first PhD students that I've gone through a complete journey with. So I have learnt so much from Professor Paolo Singh, who has been um, the principal of Carla's journey, and also our colleague, Dr Sue Watman. And so I've learned a lot from them, but they've been also very hands-on in supporting Carla, which, you know, I, I guess we all know that I only recently went through my experience and finished in the end of 2018. So I learned um, a lot about being on the other end, the same as Carla is. So you just try to foresee the problems and deal with them before they get ahead. But... Uh, Carla was an absolutely committed uh, candidate considering everything that she's been through and being locked down in Chile and she talked about how her research changed and, and morphed as it went but that's really natural in the process anyway and the more that Carla read the more that she understood and that's how she ended up landing on teacher activism so yeah we, we've got no doubt that uh, Carla will get through in the near future and shine from there. So now that you're pulling all those results together, Carla, it, can we talk about a bit about what you found? I mean, have there been any results that surprised you, perhaps, that you, you didn't expect? Engaging with Indigenous research methodologies has many advantages. And for me, I sort of came up with four different advantages. 
uh, that I could think of now. Indigenous uh, research methodologies offer alternatives uh, to the dominant research paradigms and also offers alternatives uh, and space to resist the traditional patterns that we are all familiar with. It also respects the identities of the researcher and the participants. It doesn't take anything for granted. I also learned with this, and I think that is a great uh, finding for me, that theory can come from everywhere. And Saldua said, even from the kitchen. <laughs> a theory, everyone knows theory, and it can come in our conversations uh, on the halls and in the coffee shop. Uh, and it's as important as the theory that can come up from other places. Whether uh, they can articulate that theory or not. Whether they can articulate the theory or not, yes. Maybe because when you, I don't know that I'm talking or I'm speaking theory, but at some point it can be theory. And the last one is that indigenous research methodologies offer embodied research and because the system of knowledge and research paradigms were my ways of knowing, being, and doing, and which are understood within my positionality. So in indigenous research methodologies, our minds are not splitted from our bodies. Everything is taken in, in consideration instead. It sounds like as researchers, you've, you've really found that we should all be open to exploring different options that uh, methodologies out of the mainstream research can provide. There's, there's many more ways exactly. to look at things. Yes, I think that is the main thing, that everything is worth exploring and we can find new ways of conducting research everywhere, as in the kitchen. As it sounds like your participants were pretty open to these methods that you use as well, that, that they worked very well. Yes, they were very grateful, as I said before, and they participated actively. I actually... Even though I had 26 teacher participants uh, or co-theorists, I have over 30 photos or over 30 testimonials, so many things, so much data and very rich. I also thought and felt that I needed to explore beyond um, because, for example, with the concepts, the model provided was great but it was just one dimension so it couldn't sort of explain the rich experiences that the teachers had so to honor them and to show their respect to them I couldn't just take bits and pieces from them I needed to find something that would give them the space the voice and the respect that they deserved Deb, it sounds like it's been quite an amazing experience for you too. I mean, you mentioned when we were doing research for this just how hard it was during COVID and how you had to really go into bat to bring colour back to Australia once lockdowns were over as well. Yeah, you're right. It was an absolute nightmare. Carla was stuck in Chile and at the time that we thought it was okay to bring her back, we got caught up in all the you know bureaucracy and the border issues and trying to know what rules were, were happening and what was right and what was wrong and and we were lucky that um, Professor Singh, Paolo, actually went into that quite heavily and she's a seasoned supervisor in these spaces so she was able to make the right moves that actually got Carla home here. 
Well, oh, it sounds like we're lucky to have you here around the table here at Griffith Macarac campus today. The two years, now that I look back, they have not been like that long, maybe, but uh, when I was there, they were. And uh, it was difficult because I couldn't talk to anyone at home, for example, about my research project. My mom would be like, what are you talking about? And my other research assistant was my nephew, who was two years old. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like... in. Between nappies and research projects. And the chili dogs. And the chili dogs, because <laughs> it's not like here and people have many dogs. My mom has seven dogs. And they would all be barking during our meetings. But yeah, it was a long journey. My supervisor was very helpful. Paolo is like, she's great. She knows everything because she has been, maybe because she has been uh, in the game for a very long time. She's very experienced. So, any problem that I could have, even now, any problem that I have, I just, hi, Parlo, can I have this problem? Can you help me solve it? And she's like, okay, a very short time, and she has everything solved. It's so great to work with her. Sounds like, just reflecting on what you've both said, I just find it fascinating that such an ancient Indigenous practice of yarning, which has been used for thousands of generations, has been able to be applied in this context. And it sounds like even with your supervisors, let alone in your research, really it's about coming together in that open, equal space and learning from each other, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think also what's really important is that gel of our supervision team, like Paolo Singh Suotman and myself, have such a a good working relationship and a good understanding and we centre Carla. So, I mean, I just really greatly appreciate being part of a team that operates that way and it's a brilliant learning experience for me. And they are, like, very coordinated and they one of them, for example, would give me feedback and the other one would check it and then they would discuss it with me and see what are the next steps to take uh, around this feedback. So the, the whole project works well. Goodness me, it just shows me over and over again we have so much to learn from Indigenous knowledge, truly, in a modern context. This is wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing with us what you have today. As you reflect now, what are some of the aspects that you know, are really close to your heart when you think about this research now? I think the whole project is very close to my heart. It's, it's part of me. It's also a way... It's also part of my activism, that's how I see it, is to provide spaces for teachers that I always have always or usually limited or no agency in the decision-making in the educational arena. So giving them this space, I think that is very important and is positive that they can share this, their experiences with me. So, yeah, everything here is close to my heart. It, come, it came from there. Thank you, Carla, and thank you, Deb, for coming and uh, assisting today and for assisting with Carla's research, of course, as one of, one of her wonderful supervisors. Thank you for joining us on The Gender Card. Our pleasure, and thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, yes. Thanks to PhD candidate Carla Tapia and Senior Research Fellow Dr Debbie Bargali for their insights on teacher activism. And that's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced by the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on all the major podcast providers, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. 
speak to you again soon.